when Napoleon was planning his conquest of, or his expansion of the French Empire, he had his generals gathered around a table. He had a map of the world and spread out before him on this map, he pointed to one particular country and he said, there, gentlemen, lies a sleeping giant. And he was pointing to China. And he made the comment because he said, if China ever is able to realise its strength, it will become unstoppable. The Church of Jesus Christ is exactly the same. If we ever really fully grasp what God has given us in the church, we will be unstoppable. In fact, if you look at the church of the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts, which begins with this tiny community of 120 people gathered in a room praying, becomes an unstoppable force that ultimately vanquishes an empire. This church, if we fully embrace who God has made us to be and what he has given us, we can be unstoppable. And I'm not talking about going out and conquering the world. I'm just talking about winning people for Jesus and what it means for us as the church to fulfil the purposes of God. We have such a wonderful privilege to be called God's people, to be called the church. And this church, and I say this with no... Uh, anger or bitterness in my heart, but folks, we are a sleeping giant. I've called the message this morning, Couch Potato Church. And I've asked us a question. What is your vision for the church? Is your vision for the church to grab your ticket for heaven and say, thank you very much, Jesus, I'm saved, and I'm just looking forward to the rapture or your second coming or you'll take me home to glory. Is that your vision of the church? Is that your vision for your life as a Christian? Because I can tell you this morning, that is not the vision that Jesus Christ has for his church or for his people. Jesus Christ did not call us to be couch potatoes. Over the last 12 months, Ross James and his team have done a fantastic job in producing for us seven days a week at WBC. And we've had such great feedback about that, about what's happening in the life of the church, the ministries, the people who are involved, the kinds of things that are happening at WBC, and encouraging you to see that our church is not just something that happens on a Sunday. Now, we say that repeatedly. But seven days a week uh, at WBC has helped that. And so uh, Ross was chatting with us as a staff toward the end of the year and we came up with this idea that this Sunday, which is normally set aside for the uh, praying of our leaders, we would call it seven days at WBC Live. Seven days a week at WBC Live. And over a few weeks back, a survey was sent out to you. So we want to provide you with some of these some of the feedback on the survey. So here's the first slide. We sent out 415 emailed invitations and we made announcements about it. Now, out of those 415 emailed invitations, we received 70 responses. 66 were done online, four were a hard copy. We received no response from 345 people. 83% of you didn't respond. Now, 
just to give it a little context, because Ross has done a lot of work with this stuff over the years, apparently in surveys, uh, anywhere between a 5 to 30% response to a survey is considered good. So uh, Ross's words were that our 17% response is reasonable. I was disappointed. Just going to tell you that. Because I actually think, and again, uh, I'm, I'm saying this, my, I've given a lot of thought to this because I, I've given you a commitment as your pastor from day one that I will not use guilt, but I'm going to actually share facts with you as well. Uh, and truth. I was disappointed because I think, given where we're at, and we have a major discipleship issue to confront and to grow through here at Woodvale, and I'll talk about that in just a few moments, but we have a major discipleship growth area, and that is in the area of service. And I think that the response that we received indicates something of that discipleship challenge that is before us. But let's go to the next slide. The question was asked, what ministries do you serve in? And this is based on the 70 responses that we received. You will see there that 22 people indicated they serve in one ministry, 12 are serving in two ministries, 10 in three, 6 in four, and two respondents said that they are serving in six ministries. Folks, that's unacceptable. Thank God for the people who are serving in ministries. But what this slide is telling us, now it's just based, it doesn't tell us everything. We only got 70 responses. So it doesn't tell us everybody who's serving. It doesn't tell us everybody who's not serving. However, what it is saying to us is that there were 30 respondents who are doing two ministries or more in the church. Now, several of you responded with comments like, I can no longer do what I used to, and that's perfectly okay. And coupled with that often was, but I can and do pray. And folks, you need to hear, those of you who are in that boat right now, you need to know that you are doing a great service to our church. And if your ministry at this point is the ministry of prayer, thank God for you. Because you need to hear that. That is so needed in our church. And I thank God for every one of you who prays for our church and prays for our ministry. So please do not sit there this morning and think that because you are praying, and that's all you can do, that you're a couch potato. You're not. Prayer is vital to ministry. Let's have a look at the next slide. So this slide tells us, just gives us an idea of who's serving in what ministries. And what's listed here for us are the ministries that have the most volunteers. In the communion preparation side, I just want to make a comment on that, because whilst we've got 16 people who are involved in that, it actually takes 14 people to do communion on a Sunday, so that kind of balances that out a bit. And then you run through, you can see the rest for yourself, growth groups, morning teas, uh, coming down to the emergency pantry area. I want to make a comment on the treehouse as well, that you have to understand that right now in treehouse, they, as other ministries do as well, need critical, have a critical need for people. But in Treehouse, particularly at the moment, there's a great need. They have two teachers who, for good reasons, have had to step back this term. And so they've had to make some adjustments for how they're going to run Treehouse this year, but or this term. But I want you to have a think about that. That just because they might have some numbers up there doesn't... It doesn't mean that the situation is all rosy. So, again... What this tells us, just based on these respondents, is that we've got an average of three volunteers per ministry across the board. Now think in terms of 20 plus ministries that you've just had standing up before you here. That's not a lot of people per ministry. That's the reality of it, because that's going to include leaders as well. Now, let's have a look at another slide. 
Question three was, how do you serve the wider community? And this was very encouraging. Again, it doesn't reflect the whole of the church based on the respondents that we had. It doesn't tell us everything. But what it does tell us is that over half the people who responded to the survey are serving in areas outside of the church as well. Uh, things like the RSL or discipling or mentoring, uh, supporting people in aged care, uh, donating blood, sporting groups. You can list them all off there. You can have a look at it. And that's very encouraging because we want to be a church that is out there in the community. But what my aim this morning is, and I recognise that one sermon is not going to achieve everything that I want. It's going to take a, a culture shift for us. But I want to kick off a movement this morning and reignite in you, particularly those of you who are not involved in service in the church right now. I want to kick off in you and kick start in you a desire to serve Jesus and to serve his people and to do that in the context of the church and start to translate that some, some of that into the life of our church. What uh, the survey told us based on those respondents, I forgot to mention back there the number of people. You might have noticed that there was 18 people who responded who were not serving in church at all which equates to about 25% of the respondents. And even if we just take that as a base guide, it's probably a little bit higher than that, but even if we take that as a base guide, imagine if we could reignite or ignite in you 25% a heart and desire to serve. Imagine what that would do for our church and the impact that it would make in our church and in our community. It would be incredible. As I said, I made a commitment to you years ago when I came here that I will not guilt trip you and I would appeal to my record, but I'm going to make things uncomfortable for you this morning. I'm not going to guilt you, but I'm going to make things uncomfortable for you. Because this is a discipleship challenge that we must grow through as a church. Do we really want to be known as Woodvale Baptist Church Couch Potatoes? Thank you. I have one. Because that certainly isn't the vision that Jesus has for his church and it isn't the vision that the writers of the New Testament have for the church. Come with me please to Hebrews chapter 10 because it raises the question this morning when we're talking about the church, what is the church? Let's go right back to basics. What is the church? I want to keep this first part brief. I want to look at verses 19 down to verse 22 just briefly and answer the question, what is the church? Two things I want to say. It comes right out of this passage. If you've got your Bibles or reading devices, you need to have them open. The first thing, the first answer, according to Hebrews here, is the church is a group of people who have been cleansed and forgiven by Jesus. Now, we know that. But the writer of the Hebrews goes into detail here. He says, look what he says in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is all about how greater Jesus is than the old way of things. The book of Hebrews has rightly been called the book of better thans because the writer to the Hebrews, writing to Jewish people, goes into the Old Testament sacrificial system, he goes into the high priestly uh, situation and he begins to explain how the old ways, the old sacrificial system was a pointer, a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus and now that Jesus is here, everything is better. And so when he talks about the blood of Jesus, he has on his mind the sacrificial system but specifically he's thinking that all of those sacrifices that were offered were to no effect 
They all simply pointed to the one great sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, and that was offered at Calvary. And so he says, you are a people who are forgiven through the death and sacrifice of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 20. He has brought about a new and living way. He says it's been inaugurated for us. What is he referring to? He's referring, he's contrasting the old way. The old way was through the temple and through the tabernacle. The old way was through the priestly system. The old way was through the sacrificial system. But what Jesus has done through his death, through his life, through his resurrection, he's opened up a new way. And that way to God, unlike the old system, is permanently open for all people. Now that's worth cheering about. The old ways are gone, says the writer. Jesus has opened up a new way. It's permanently open for all people. And it's a living way because it brings real life. And the reason it brings real life is because it brings forgiveness. It brings cleansing from sin. Jesus has opened up this permanent new way. How did he do it? Again, the Old Testament sacrificial system is in mind. He said he did this through the veil that is his flesh. You know the story. We're coming up to Easter in April. We talk about it every Easter, that at the moment Jesus died, what happened in the temple? The veil, the curtain that separated all people apart from the high priest from God, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. At that precise moment when Jesus died... We are told by the New Testament authors that the veil, the curtain that separated the holy place from the rest of the people was torn in two. And now the Hebrews writer, the Hebrews writer likens that to Jesus. His body, if you like, is the curtain. His body was sacrificed. It was torn, if you like. And what happened? Access into the presence of God was open. It's a new and living way brought about by his death. And resurrection. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What did the priest used to do with the blood sacrifices? He would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on the altar. Or if a leper came for cleansing and to be pronounced cleansed, he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the leper. The sprinkling of the blood represents cleansing. And so here the writer reminds us that through the shedding of Jesus' blood, through that sprinkling on us, we are cleansed. And notice the allusion to baptism at the end of the verse. He said, our bodies have been washed with pure water. What's he saying? He's saying, you've been baptised. Your body was washed as a symbol of that inner cleansing. You see, note the order. The sprinkling of the blood comes. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And baptism... That washing of our bodies is symbolic of that cleansing of what Christ has done in us. The church is a group of people who have been cleansed and forgiven by Jesus. Just to wrap it up, look at chapter 10, verse 10 again. By, his, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. All of this, we are the church, all of it achieved through the one sacrifice for all time, for all people of Jesus Christ. And the church is also a group of people who are led by Jesus. 
Look at the uh, verse 21. We have a great priest over the house of God. That phrase, the house of God, is talking about all the people of faith of all time, and of course it includes the church. And who is our great high priest? Who is our leader? Our leader is Jesus. This one who laid down his life is our priest. He enters into the holy place where the presence of God is and he makes it possible for us to enter in. And notice, folks, this is all about worship. Look at verse 19. It's, it's all about worship. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy place that's coming into the presence of God. If you go down a little bit further to verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Again, draw near to who? To God, into his presence. This is all about worship. We come near through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice. We come into the holy place, we into the presence of God to worship. And let me say this about worship. He's not talking about singing hymns and listening to a sermon and praying on a Sunday. That's part of worship, but it's only one part. He's talking here about a life of worship. A life of living for Jesus. I want you to go to Romans chapter 12. And verse 1, just for a moment. Because this concept of worship as a lifestyle is clearly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He says in Romans 12 verse 1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now the word he uses is a Greek word called latreia. And the interesting thing about this word latreia is it refers to serving God in the temple. So inbuilt to this word is not this idea of singing, that's part of it, not this idea of coming to church, that's part of it, but it built into it is the notion of service. Worship and service go hand in hand. Here's the first thing that's going to make you uncomfortable. If you are not serving God and his people somewhere, you're not worshipping. The Bible is clear. It's in black and white. That part and parcel of our worship as a lifestyle, living for Jesus, yes, coming to church on Sunday, that's important, but part and parcel of it is serving God and his people in his church. If you are not serving, you are not worshipping. So, if that's what the church is, what does the church do? Or I'm going to put it another way because I want to personalise it. If that's what it means to be a Christian, what do Christians do? How do they worship? How do they serve? I'm glad you asked that question. I want you to look at Hebrews 10 verse 23 again. The first thing they do is they stay faithful to Jesus. This is, this is not rocket science. This is a no-brainer. They stay faithful to Jesus. Look at verse 23. Here's the first thing. Based on, I want you to see what the writer is doing. He's established what Jesus has done for us. And now he's saying, based on what Jesus has done for us, let us. It's an exhortation. First thing he says is, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let's stay faithful to Jesus. Folks, if you haven't heard me say this before or if you've missed it, please hear it today. Just because you made a commitment to Jesus years ago and have done nothing since doesn't actually translate into a life of discipleship. Do you know what the test of discipleship is? 
Jesus told parables about it. He told a parable of a man who put his hand to the plough and began to plough but kept looking back. Jesus said, it's no good just making a commitment. You make that commitment just about every day of your life to follow on and to follow Jesus and to be committed as a disciple. Disciples are faithful. They're committed to faithfulness through all the ups and downs of that discipleship journey. The Christian life is a commitment to discipleship. It's not, I made a commitment at the Billy Graham crusade in 1959. That is the start of your discipleship journey. But if you've done nothing since, you need to have a talk to God. Disciples stay faithful. Why do they stay faithful? Look at verse 23. Because Jesus, the one who promised, is faithful. We are faithful because we can rely on the promises of Jesus because he is faithful to us. I look back on my discipleship journey, which, as was shared, started 50 years ago. I'm so thankful to the faithfulness of Jesus in my life. Through all the ups and downs, that, those first faltering steps to Jesus that I made, and they were faltering steps, but he has been faithful. He's good for his word. Here's the second thing that Christians do. They serve Jesus and each other. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Uh, the, word, or the translation you have up there is, let us consider how we may spur one another on. I really like this word because actually the interesting thing is this word spur or stimulate... Uh, the vast majority of times it's used in the New Testament is to describe something that is annoying or negative. It means to irritate. It means to get under your skin. It, it's means, it refers to something that is sharp and pointed and it annoys you. Like when you're sitting at the cricket with 53,000 people and there's somebody who always sits with their legs like this, bumping on your leg. It's irritating. Or someone stands in front of you every time a ball is bowled. It's irritating. It gets under your skin. That's what this word means. It's irritating. I told you I was going to make you uncomfortable. The thing is, this word here, as I said, is used in a negative sense the vast majority of times. But on this occasion, it's used in a positive sense. And that tells you that it's, he's using a negative word in a positive sense to actually highlight the importance of what he's saying. He wants to get under their skin. And so he says, let's consider how to, I love this, irritate one another. We do that a lot in church, don't we? Let us consider how to stir up one another. That's not what he meant. He's talking about what? Let's not irritate each other to get on each other's nerves, but we spur each other on to love and good deeds. Folks, that's service. We spur each other on in our love for God, our love for each other, and we do it to encourage people into ministry, into service, to do good things. As I said, it's a no-brainer. So let's have a look at question two that we asked in our survey. Why do you think people can't be involved in a ministry? And... There were, uh, uh, Ross has actually compiled this into four areas which are really helpful and they, they all go together. So I want to deal firstly with this one here, personal circumstances. So some people say they're not involved because they have other responsibilities or obligations. 
And down here we had motivation, a lack of motivation not challenged on the nature of serving. I think we do actually do that, but we can do better and we acknowledge that. Uh, I don't like weekly commitment or rosters. These are some of the comments. Prefer to be passive churchgoers. Uh, I read there, prefer to be couch potatoes. Uh, fear of more work or time than thought. So, I told you I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I want to address those two things, personal circumstances and motivation for a moment. I want you to hear Romans 12 verse 6. Since we have gifts, let us each exercise them accordingly. 1 Corinthians 12.7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Write these down if you've got the opportunity. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Bible is very clear on two things. God has given you gifts, every one of you. And two, he wants you to use them. He wants you to serve. So, you go back to your personal circumstances, your lack of motivation, uh, you don't like a weekly commitment, you don't like rice, rosters, you want to be passive. I want you to have an honest talk with God in the light of his word and look at this. You have been given gifts and you have a responsibility to use them. When I was 17, I preached my first sermon. I was asked to take part uh, in a youth service at our church. I had to share the sermon with another uh, guy in the church. After I had preached, I sat down and an elder came to me and he said to me, Rob, you have a gift and you have to use it. You need to use it, were his words. I've never forgotten it. You need to use it. That is why I'm standing here today, because he set off a train of thought. There were things going in my head already anyway, but he set off a train of thought that didn't get turned off. And it was probably about 12, 18 months later when I received a very powerful call by God into ministry. Folks, you have gifts. And the motivation, all the motivation you need is the word of God which says because you have a gift, you use it to serve God and to serve his people. It's that clear. I told you I was going to make you uncomfortable. We use excuses for ministry. We use prayer as an excuse. I'm going to ask you this. How much prayer is required to decide whether you're going to serve on morning tea or some sort of roster? How much prayer does that require? What happened? We need to get back to basics as the church, not just this church, but as the church. We need to get back to basics, which is just good old-fashioned service. We need to underline it. We get into the area of gifts. Yes, you have gifts, but we, we use prayer as an excuse. I don't feel led. I remember a classic of that. Uh, we had a group of our young people wanting to do ministry for older people in one of the churches I served in. And they went to the senior pastor's house, uh, Wes Caddy, he was my senior pastor. And he said, well, great, he said, I'd like you to go and do some gardening. And the response was, I don't feel led to do gardening. What happened to good old-fashioned service? We used that, we trot that out, I don't feel led. I love what Rick Warren says, some people need to get the lead out of their butts <laughs> and start serving. I don't feel led can become an excuse. I don't have the peace of God. Let's stop making excuses and start looking for where we can start serving God and each other. Now I want to have a look 
at the next two. This is the area of opportunity. Sorry, we go back. The area of opportunity and the area of gifting. And this is legitimate. And this is somewhere in the vicinity of 24% of people, uh, I think, have said this in another survey that we did a, a year or two back for the National Life Church Life Survey. So it's interesting how things correspond. But about 24% of us as a church are saying, we haven't been asked, we need a personal invitation. We can do better as that as leaders. We want to acknowledge that and give people more opportunity. Uh, some people are unaware of needs, what is involved, who to contact, lacking confidence or feeling inadequate. I want to deal with that just for a few moments this morning. As I said, one message is not going to solve this, but let's look at the area of gifting because a lot of people are confused about gifting. A lot of people have got this idea that they don't have any gifts. You have a gift or gifts. And our church is crying out for you to use those gifts. For some of you, it's a no-brainer. You know what your gift is, and that's great, and I encourage you into service. But let, let me just ask you this. When it comes to the subject, how can I find out? Because often we say, go and do a spiritual gift questionnaire. And we're chatting about this. And my experience has been the experience of other pastors. People do spiritual gift questionnaires. Like, I, I have a friend of mine, and he came up, and he did the spiritual gift questionnaire, and he came out with the gift of martyrdom and the gift of celibacy. <laughs> wasn't particularly thrilled about that. I don't think gift questionnaires help. So how do you find out what you're gifted in this? How do you find out where you could serve? Let me ask you this question. Uh, I, I owe this to Rick Warren. I think it's so helpful. What is your shape? Ask yourself this question. Write this down. This is life-changing. Let's have a look at shape. We've got the word down the side there, please. The S in shape stands for spiritual gifts. We've already ascertained and uh, uh, laid out the foundation. We all have gifts. But people say, well, what is my gift? Well, let me say this about the New Testament. I don't think that the New Testament lists of gifts are exhaustive. I really don't think it is. But you have gifts. And do you know the best way to find out if you have a gift or not? Is go and try serving somewhere. Go and try serving in the treehouse or girls' brigade. You might find out that you have this incredible gift to relate to kids and to share Jesus with them. Or on a hospitality roster, you might have this incredible, or the welcoming team, whatever it might be, you might have this incredible gift of just making people feel welcome and love being a part of the church. Remember the Adams family? For goodness sakes, don't put Lurch on the welcoming team. But some of you just have that personality that people love. Put yourself in a place where you can begin to discover your abilities, your, your gifts. Second thing, heart. What am I talking about here? What touches your heart? What moves your heart? Another question to ask. What can't you stand? What is it that really gets you rolled up and you want to do something about it? That's part and parcel of who God made you to be. I think of Asha Thievi in our church and how she heads up Camp Devia Ministry in India. Because that's her heart. Ask yourself, what is my heart? What is it that I really get excited about? What is it that when somebody talks about it, it just sets, uh, sets me ablaze? Third thing, abilities. Every one of us has skills. Did you know that time after time, multinational companies have done testing on people and study after study has shown, get this, 
that we as individuals possess 400 to 500 skills. Did you know that about yourself? You have skills. 400 to 500, possibly. Oh, sorry, actually 500 to 700. I misread my notes. Now, when you turn up at a church and say, my gift is a gift of criticism, that is not a skill. <laughs> right? That happened in a church that I know. I wasn't the pastor at the time. I'm glad the previous pastor copped that one. That is not a skill. That is a character flaw, and there are other ways of dealing with that. And sorry, young adults, but being able to drink two litres of warm Coke and then belch for 40 seconds is not a skill. It's just plain gross. But it may have its place. You have skills and abilities that you can use. The Bible talks about this. Think of the word skill and wisdom. It's the same Hebrew word. And it says that when God instructed Moses to set aside men for building of the tabernacle, he said, choose this man and this man because they have skill in this area. And the word is the same Hebrew word for wisdom that occurs in Proverbs. What is that saying? That some of us are skilled with our heads and some of us are skilled with our hands, but we all have skills, we all have abilities. And you can bring those to the table in your service. There's personality that comes into this as well. What sort of a personality are you? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Are you a thinker or a feeler? See, some of you might, because you're intuitive with your emotions, you might most likely work better in pastoral care or in teams. Some of us work better on our own, and that's not saying that you don't get involved in teamwork. You have to. But some people are just really good at focusing on one thing and doing that job well. What's your personality? How has God created you? Because that personality can be used in ministry. And then there are experiences you have educational experiences. You have job experiences. What have you enjoyed doing in the workplace? Where have you had success? What about ministries that you've done before? You've got experiences there. What did you enjoy doing? What did God bless? What about your spiritual experiences, your discipleship journey? And yes, it includes your painful experiences. I love this statement. God never wastes a hurt. And you have experiences that God can use and wants to use. He is just hanging out for you to use them in his church. So uh, I want to direct you this morning to our ministry tables. There are countless opportunities of getting involved in service and putting yourself in the way of service. We have a great need across the board for all of our ministries. When you get to the youth table, they have a particular need for mentoring. I've spoken about the treehouse, but we've got opportunities in children's ministry, in brigades ministry. I, I can't name you all, but folks, go and talk to the people and look at all the tables and just think, maybe I could serve here. One final thing. Here's the other thing Christians do. I'm going to do this real quickly. They meet together in fellowship regularly. I have had it on my heart this last three years through COVID. Folks, we're through it doesn't mean it's going to go away. It doesn't mean that the changes will go back to everything the way it was. But folks, we are through the worst of it, I believe. And I think it is time for us, I'm saying this to you folks on live stream as well, I think it is time that we get back to the regular meeting together in-house. It's been on my heart before this message came about. But I want to say it. It is time. I'm not going to be legalistic about it. Going to church does not make you a Christian, but folks, it's important. It says it here in black and white. And part of our worship is to gather together. Why? That we encourage each other, that we stir each other up 
to ministry and service. Livestream is here to stay. I know that uh, there are those of you who use it, but folks, you can't be a church just through livestream. It, it serves a need for people who are shut in, for people who are ill, or, or if you're having an off Sunday or whatever. I get all that. But folks, I want to encourage you to get back to in-house worship. It is so important because we need each other. Rick Warren says this, Every believer isn't a pastor. But every believer is called in the ministry. God calls all believers to minister to the world and to the church. Service in the body isn't optional for Christians. In God's army, there are no volunteers. He's drafted us all into service. WBC, it's time to get off the couch.